Chapter 7, $200, Part 3 I stare at this frail old man and I can hardly believe it's my father. I look at him and long for his old hearty Irish laugh. But his humor comes out now at best as an occasional quiet whimper across curled-up lips. I examine his face, longing for that smiling twinkle in his eye, the image I held on to from his sober moments. But it is gone, too. I gaze at him and remember his dark hair and white-gray sideburns, the natural style I thought so sophisticated in my youth when he came home from work, suited and sober. Before he took his evening Demerol, or Darvon, or Codeine, whatever the pusherman pharmacist was passing to him that week. Before his addiction escalated to daytime pill-popping and lunchtime martini drinking as well. But his hair is only a wisp of white. He seldom combs now. My father had the potential to be a great man. When I was young, I thought he was a great man. He earned a university degree before World War II, when few men were earning college degrees. He knew many men who went on to be great men. Mayors, newspaper publishers, bank owners. All those men loved my father. They talked on the phone even after they had reached old age. They met for lunch at the palace in San Francisco. They sent notes to each other on important anniversaries. They knew the nicknames of each other's wives. Success for my father always remained just out of reach. Bad luck, I thought. Even as a child, knowing that my father was a drug addict, I blamed his professional failures on bad luck. I was too young to understand that the failures were drug-induced, the fate of an addict. Too young to understand that my father's destiny was plotted the day he was born the son of an alcoholic father, and strengthened the day his father abandoned his mother and him when he was twelve, and assured when no mentor arrived on the scene to show my father another life, a way to be whole without drugs, a way to rid himself of drugs and pain, a way to heal and move on, a way to face the challenges of life and soar. There was no moment of light for my father. My father often said to me, I wish I could help you, Tiger. I wish he could have too. Isn't that what fathers are supposed to do? My favorite thing was when my father held my hand. He seemed so protective then, I loved his hand, so large and strong, 
his nails always well manicured. My hand floated happily in his. He seemed so there when he held my little hand in his big hand. He seemed like a real dad when he did that. Someone who would protect, comfort, and guide me. Like a dad who knew what to do. Today my dad is dying and he's asking for my advice. That was my fate. Plotted on the day I was born to an addict father, son of an addict father. Strengthened at ten when my father began to depend on me to carry him to bed at night because the drugs had made his legs too wobbly. Assured, when my father began to rely on me to comfort him and tell him I loved him. Even when there was no food in our middle-class home cupboards because he had lost another job and spent the remaining cash on Darvon. And locked when my father turned to me for spiritual guidance in his last years. I raised my father, and it was not until my midlife awakening that I realized I would never get what I sought from a father. I would never learn from him what a father was supposed to be, to teach, because our roles were reversed. Silly rabbit, children aren't supposed to be parents.